My mother believed and my father believed that if I wanted to be president of the United States, I could be, I could be vice president. This is America. Former Vice President Joe Biden has been elected president of the United States. It is my greatest honor and privilege to have been your president. We will be back in some form. We are still deeply divided. Public health experts warned this was coming unless more was done. And here we are now. Are you proud of what happened here today? Absolutely. Never before in American history has there been an uprising like this. Of the 75 million Americans who voted for Donald Trump, I don't know how many today are feeling, dear God, what was I thinking? But I would wager a lot more are thinking, let's carry on this fight. Character matters. It matters. Tell them the truth matters. The 21st century is going to be the American century. Because we lead not only by the example of our power, but by the power of our example. That is the history of the journey of America. Marion McKeown is at the annual Conservative Political Action Conference, CPAC for short. Some people are calling it TPAC because it really is the last bastion of Trumpism. It is 210% Trump. This will feature several panels on the topic of of the now proven lie that the election was stolen from Donald Trump. Those panels are other culprits. Why judges in the media refuse to look at the evidence. The left pulled the strings, covered it up and even admits it. Marion, you're there right in the middle of it. <laughs> what is it like to be in that cauldron? Well, you know, I can, it, honestly, surreal. It's always surreal because you're in a sort of a, a pressure cooker atmosphere of people who are absolutely... These are the diehards, like these are the absolute Trump fanatics who will not hear that the election wasn't stolen, who will not hear that Donald Trump isn't the greatest thing. And some of them, there's a sort of a naivety, like I spoke with one guy yesterday for ages and he was wearing a suit that was built, that was made of an entire, the fabric was all a wall, a brick wall. So, you know, build the wall, get it. Even his tie was was brick sort of patterned and he comes every year in this suit and all the ladies flock around him like he's George Clooney like all the to all the women love Trump and for photos and for and then you talk to him and you really realize that these people it's become their life it's become almost like he said he didn't want to talk about what he did anymore to me you know what his job was and that he spends his time basically promoting Trump he's not getting paid or anything but it's almost like this becomes their life's purpose mm. this and it's very culty it's the yeah, only like a word for fan. it they're, they're, they're in yeah. a club yeah, but I would say even more because football fans go home and whatever. But this is all consuming for these people. And as I say, if Manchester United loses 5-0, <laughs> they don't say they don't say it was stolen. It was stolen. They didn't lose. They didn't lose. Uh, they actually they do won. that. <laughs> they do that the odd time. Oh, do they? <laughs> they blame the ref uh, and VAR and whatnot. But I, I know I, it's a diehardism. Like there are Man United fans who yeah. don't go home and just live it every minute of their lives. Uh, I think it's a very fair analogy that you're saying that the people that attend this, they're red or dead. They're yeah. there's literally there's no talking to them. There's no reaching them. But this is a Republican Party in the middle of an identity crisis. So what good does this do them? Well, it's interesting that some of the Republicans have stayed, stayed away. So Mitch McConnell, no surprise, he would be booed 
I mean, there would be nothing in for him to turn up. Kevin McCarthy has stages away as well. Kirsty Nome, which is a strange one. Everybody thought that she would be promoting herself as Trump's possible vice president candidate in 2024. But And of course, Ron DeSantis. Now, the big thing with Ron DeSantis is, did he stay away or was he told to stay away by Matt Schlapp? Just to give it a context, the Gaylord Convention Centre in Maryland, where this is on, is this massive. It's like a town onto itself. It's just this huge place. It's got all these different rooms. And the whole way, every corridor is just flooded with people wearing Trump t-shirts, Trump hats, Trump sunglasses, Trump everything. It's Trump. And then you've got an exhibition centre, which is massive. It's the size of at least two football pitches. And it's full of just all things Trump and all things anti-democratic. So you have the usual things. You have the toilet roll with Nancy Pelosi's face on it. You have the pictures of Joe Biden with a Hitler moustache on him. You have all this stuff. You have the NRA are there in force. You've got, you know, it's sort of, it is like the annual, it's the, the sort of mecca of the far right. And there is no, so Ron DeSantis not being there is interesting because everyone knows he's about to throw his hat into the ring. He did the pilgrimage to the Ronald Reagan Library in California that must do for any Republican presidential candidate. He's got the book out at the moment that he's promoting. And I think if he came here, because it's so rapidly Trump, that he would be booed. I think he could, and he didn't want to take that chance. I think whether he voluntarily stayed away or whether, I think on balance, it was a smart choice for him because he's not going to go up against Trump under the same roof in the same building at this point. Mm-hmm. There is no point to that. So, so well, but by I him staying away, people are saying now that he's scared of Trump. So, you know, how how do you win? I also think that he's a bit scared of the the platform and the place that the conversations that I've been listening to over the past week and the reading that I've been doing around it, including uh, trying to get a peek at this The Courage to be Free book, is that one of the biggest concerns around Ron DeSantis is the blandness, the what was it you called it? The personality vacuum that he suffers from and that being aloof and being kind of like standoffish brooding kind of man that he is is so good to so far it will get you so far but when we look at presidential candidates and presidential winners they all have this ability to be good in the mall in the supermarket shaking the hands is there any chat around exactly how bad Ron DeSantis is at that? I think that it's not just that, as we've said before, he has the personality of, well, let's say a sheet of blank paper, but he's nasty. He's a paper cutter. Like, he, you know, there'd be nothing on it, but it'll cut you. He's got a, he's very vindictive and he really does. And he's also, I mean, in terms of the cultural wars, he like Trump is only at the starting blocks compared to DeSantis because he has gone out and done so many things where he's tried to get to block students from taking courses on black history in schools. He's done this whole don't say gay bill, which he claims is to stop children from kindergarten to about the age of 10 from being taught about sex and gender issues, which, you know, not many people would object to, I think, but it actually gives him the right to veto all of it all the way through school at any age, which is the bit that he doesn't talk about. And he's done, as I said, the whole thing with Disneyland that he's now taken back their sort of 40 square miles and said, right, I'm in charge of this now. He is such a despot. Trump has despotic tendencies as well, but he didn't, he hadn't shown them in such evidence 
evidence before 2016. Everybody thought he was just this sort of, you know, game show host and billionaire and mm. my God, wouldn't it be great to be rich like him sort of thing. But DeSantis has, has an edge as well, as well. As you say, he's definitely not good in the mall or anywhere else that requires him to glad handle and look like he's happy to be there. But he's also got this nasty edge to him that is, and you know, I flicked through the book it's so bland. It's so bland. Mm. It's, it's as bland as he is. Yeah, and it says yeah. nothing about Trump. So he's, it's like nothing he's about Trump. all very, of his very... right. And, and anything he does say is nice and gracious mm. and kind. And how when he was growing up, Trump was the guy, the rich man in America. Actually, when he was growing up, Trump was bankrupt. And, 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 and in the middle of a total mess with his wives and everything else. Yeah, so, but, yeah. but a lot of people wouldn't have been aware of that. This is the thing, that the brand was still there, that he was still getting out of a limo at the time. But uh, what I also thought about in terms of Ron DeSantis this weekend, not being at CPAC and why he might actually be afraid of something like CPAC is so much of the campaigning that goes into this thing, 2024, involves candidates being thrown out of their comfort zone and yeah. it feels like he's got a very limited comfort zone that and his message is don't let them tell you what you can do with your kids let yeah. me tell you exactly <laughs> the irony you know it's so it, it's an irony that escapes certainly all the republicans yeah. that while they're berating the left for their socialism and enforced whatever that they are doing exactly the right and the same thing and then some on the right that th th what they're doing is is dictatorial mm. it's, it's, he's he's a petty despot when yeah. it comes to education when it comes to sex education when it comes to you know basic things like black history whether he likes it or not it happened you know, there is an atrocious history of slavery and cruelty and the oppression of black people now he he mightn't like it but he is he you know as governor he's trying to deny it he's trying to literally whitewash american history and you just you really wonder how far this will take him but it certainly hasn't taken him to to see back this yeah. year i attended actually just i i'm digressing here because to give you a sense of also what's going on here, I went to an activism training course last night, and it's all about the copy what the Democrats are doing, beat the left at their own game. And the big thing that I'm noticing this year is, you know, in 2020 and 2022, Trump and all of the Republicans went mad, went full out against absentee voting, against people being able to vote early, against all that kind of thing where you could mail in your vote, which has become really popular in so many states. Now there's a bit of a U-turn that I'm sensing on that because they're looking at this and they're going, well, all we did was really stop our own people from voting early and from availing of mail-in voting. And it's, we certainly didn't stop the Democrats. So I suspect that this is the start of the rehabilitation that they will all suddenly Republicans will never have been opposed to mail-in voting or to, you know, because it didn't serve their purposes. And now Donald Trump is apparently as well about to do a big U-turn and say, yeah, mail it in, get it in early. We don't care what you do once you get it in, basically, which is more or less what Democrats were saying. But I'm just looking at some of the, and you mentioned it earlier, Charlotte, so, some of the sessions. There's one this afternoon, which is Don Lemon has passed his prime time. I mean, they, they're devoting a whole, a whole session. A whole hour. <laughs> 
a host, to a CNN host. I mean, what what is the point? And then, of course, you've got sacking the woke playbook. Doctor Strangelove isn't just a movie. That's Katie McFarland, who was really not a very highly regarded deputy national security advisor. I think she was in there for about a week. And then you've got big tech and it's break them up, bust them up, put them in jail. And Devin Nunes is talking about this now. Now, interestingly, Devin Nunes is also the CEO of Trump's deeply troubled Truth Social. So basically, he's there advocating as the CEO of Truth Social that you break up, bust up and put big tech in jail. So which presumably would remove some competition from Trump's miserable subscription list on Truth Social. And then you've got parents with pitchforks, which I'm sorry, just like the aggression in all these sessions. And of course, you've got the Biden crime family. A whole hour is going to be devoted to the Biden crime family. And then, you know, the finish the wall, the MyPillow guy, Mac. Mike Lindell is making my speech and then you've got Death at the Surrender Caucus taking on the swamp. Nigel Farage is speaking, which isn't unusual, he's done it before, but also the former president of Brazil, Jair Bolsonaro, who triggered his own January 6th moment with riots in Brazil when he was defeated. He's a headline guest as well. So, you know, CPAC has gone, it's now franchised around the world too. There's one in Australia, you've got they go to Hungary, they go to where it's basically trying to sow global seeds for this kind of far right sort of sentiment about everything. And it, to me, it's a really strange thing. And it may be, I don't see it leading anywhere good. You know, I don't see it leading anywhere good honouring people like Jair Bolsonaro and, and Nigel Farage at these events and giving them platforms. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, of course, you've got all the usual ones. You've got the Marjorie Taylor Green, the Ted Cruz is speaking later on today, Lauren Bobart. Stephen Miller, J.D. Vance, blah, blah, blah. Don Jr., of course you've got Don Jr., who's getting his very own slot, along with Kimberly Guilfoyle, who will introduce him. So it's all, and as I said, then you go to the exhibition centre and you're just assaulted by all of the Trump paraphernalia, by all the merchandise, by all the the merchandise that is really, that basically has just got these really hostile anti-democratic slogans, the T-shirts, the hats, the everythings, and they're being snapped up. You know, there, there's a real sense here that it's us versus them, but in a, the most hostile way possible where, you know, it, it, it's kind of fascinating. But I will say that the CPAC chairman, Matt Gates, I beg your pardon, Matt Schlapp, not Matt Gates, although I'm sure he'd like to be, is under a cloud of his own because last, during the 2020 midterms, now Matt Schlapp is all in the tank for Trump. So as he said, CPAC has become TPAC. So if you're not really a Trump supporter, you'd better stay away. Or if you're Nikki Haley or Mike Pompeo, who have their own eyes on on the 2024 nomination, you'd better not say anything bad about Trump. You better Mm -hmm. just say nothing. So I suspect that that's what's going to happen. I'd be very interested to hear both of their speeches. But as I said, last November, October, November, Schlapp was down in Georgia and he was campaigning for Herschel Walker, the NFL footballer who was trying to get elected to the Senate for as a Republican. Now, on one occasion, a campaign aide said that he was driving Schlapp back to his hotel and that basically Schlapp sexually assaulted him as he was driving him, that he fondled his groin and he kept, you know, made, made overt sexual advances to him and then invited him back to his hotel room, asked him to go for drinks with him, etc. Now, Matt Schlapp, who is married and has five children, is absolutely denying this. And But there is a legal action underway. He's being sued for $9.4 million by this individual who hasn't, who was identified online quite maliciously, but has not been named and legally has the right not to have his name issued. But of course, everyone 
knows who he is. It's, mm. it's an open secret who he is. So it's, um, it's another, that has cast another a shadow. Show. Yeah. Yeah, that's another sideshow. And of course, there, there is, and Fox News has stayed away this year as well. Well, I mean, that might be no harm. And also, interestingly, the RNC, the Republican National Committee, Ronald McDaniels, who is very, or was very pro-Trump, and who is a niece of Mitt Romney's, who is not very pro-Trump, as we know, she's been in the tank very much behind Trump, and she's been a very high-profile part of CPAC until this year. But this year, the RNC is staying away. So I suspect, look, this has been said so many times in various ways on Capitol Hill or whatever, that the Republicans' plan, if there is one, is really that Donald Trump dies sometime between now and 2024. <laughs> That's, you know, he gets hit by a meteorite or he How do you mean falls this over the plan? golf course the, the, or he gets hit by a stray golf ball the, on the head or whatever. I don't that, understand. That, they, they, want, they don't want him to run. No, they don't want him, but they can't. They There's can't say nothing. that. They can't say it and they can't stop him because they know oh, that he has got 35% of the primary vote locked in and that if there's a field of more than two other people and even one other person, i.e. Ron DeSantis, Trump is probably going to be the candidate. And then <sighs> worse again, that if he's not the candidate, that he's going to take his 35% and run as an independent oh candidate just for the hell so of it. So it, it really so is becoming like an really, awkward family gathering now. Yeah, where they have created their Uncle own Uncle Donald insists yes. on doing the barbecue even yes. though he crucifies <laughs> it every single time. He, he could <laughs> yeah. set the whole house on fire. And if we tell him he can't do it, he's going to take his meat and his coals and run. Yes. And, and the barbecue. And, <laughs> and who knows what else. It does strike me that CPAC has changed over the years and that oh, it's yeah. taken so many iterations, even to the point where Trump once snubbed it in 2016. That's right. Wouldn't it, turn up at all. Is it yeah. less and less meaningful? And is it becoming more like with a marathon, you have the expo the day before where you can buy your running shorts and tops and all the running paraphernalia. And sure, there'll be some speeches at it. But the real meaningful thing is somewhere else on another day. You know, I th that in a way would be partly I would agree with you with that. But CPAC at the moment, it gave Trump power and it derives its power from Trump. It's like a a circular sort of, I won't say the obvious, but there is this sort of symbiotic relationship. So they know that once Trump is there, they're, all the Trump supporters are going to turn up and they're going to flock the halls, etc. And they're going to just, they'll be everywhere. And so I think CPAC is now, it's the sort of organ of the far right of the Republican Party, but most of the Republican Party is now far right. So there's really not anywhere to go for the dwindling group of moderates who, who were at the centre. None of them would dream of turning up at CPAC. They wouldn't be safe probably turning up at CPAC. But you're absolutely right. In 2016, I was there and I was there before. You know, I was there back in 2002, I think, and, and various other times. This was an event where sweet old Republicans went, where retirees went and they spent their savings on turning up at CPAC and they'd meet each other. And it was like being on a cruise where you'd meet the same people every year and they were all silver haired and they all wore suits and they were all very polite and they were all there to worship Ronald Reagan. And everywhere you went, there were cutouts of Ronald Reagan. His image was everywhere. So it was basically just like worshipping at the altar of Ronald Reagan since Trump and Trump 
snubbed it in 2016 for precisely that reason, because all of the people who were speaking, the Jeb Bushes, etc., all despised Trump openly, and they said, he isn't a Republican, we're Republicans. So Trump was like, screw you, screw your CPAC, I'm not even going to bother showing up. But then once he won, and Matt Schlapp had become chairman, this sort of, it, it morphed, as the whole Republican Party did, into Trump's party. It just, it became the party of Trump rather than the Republican Party. Now, there is a part of the party of Trump that is trying to move away now, hoping that he won't notice. But CPAC is still very firmly the convention of the party of Trump. And he is the headline speaker on Saturday evening at 5.30 or whenever he speaks. And it will be packed and the crowd will jump up and down and everything he says, they will cheer themselves hoarse. It doesn't matter what he says. And that's how it is. If you sort of, it's like a bit like living by the sword, dying by the sword. If Trump becomes irrelevant, which he will do at some point, I think so too, will CPAC largely, other than, as I said, remaining a sort of a gathering of the extreme right of America, which is what it is pretty much at the moment. Well, we do have a lot of other stories to cover, Marion. You sent me a rundown of what we could potentially talk about. And it's probably the most packed one I've seen you send across. This week, I have, I recommended last week that people tune into the Alex Murdoch Netflix series, ah, which yes. seemed very early. It seemed to be released at a point In where, yeah, say, where yeah. you would think that jurors are potentially going to watch this in their hotel rooms but that didn't stop it it's out there and it's a three-part series on netflix while the trial is wrapping up i'm talking of course about the murder trial alex murdoch the disbarred south carolina lawyer who's accused of killing his wife and son the jury saw an awful lot of brand new evidence and heard an awful lot of powerful witness testimony marion what is the sense that you get over there about how this could go? Oh, Creighton Waters, who was the lead prosecutor, did a sum up on Wednesday and it was so dramatic. It was over three hours and he was hunched over in outrage and it was all J'accuse, which is his job. He's the prosecutor, but it was very dramatic. And, you know, it would seem to me, objectively, the jury spent Wednesday morning, they asked, or the defence asked if they could be walked through where the killings took place, which was at the dog kennels near a hunting lodge that they have, that the Murdochs have on their land. I mean, these are really wealthy people, notwithstanding the fact that he's alleged to have stolen $8.6 million from his law firm. But they were, as we said before, we spoke about this, they in the low country in, in South Carolina, it's it's very poor are very, very rich. And they were part of the very, very rich. They had boats, they had hunting lodges, they had a huge amount of property, land, a massive big mansion. His father, his grandfather and his great grandfather were all lawyers and were all well established in South Carolina. In fact, they had to remove his grandfather's portrait from the courthouse where he was having, where the trial is going on. You know, they literally, his family dominated law in in South Carolina and certainly in that region. And so, again, it's this sort of, you couldn't make it up how the mighty have fallen, almost Shakespearean or Greek tragedy of this guy who had everything, who was born into this privilege and wealth and basically just is now accused, and I think the case is very compelling, of having murdered his wife and son. It's also sort of caused investigators to re-examine the death of his housekeeper, 
who was killed in his house in 2018 when she allegedly accidentally fell down the stairs. And of course, his defence, I mean, I, th- I think that the prosecution did a good job in the defence. Uh, you know, they, they really did pull all the stuff together in the, the sorry, the prosecution's closing speech. But the defence is going to hammer on reasonable doubt and circumstantial evidence. And what they're saying, which to me seems pretty thin, but you never know because the OJ defence was pretty thin, let's face it. And so they are saying that there was no blood on his clothes. There's no direct evidence. There's no forensic evidence. We haven't found the guns. So Mm -hmm. how do we know it was him? And they are also playing back into, as we spoke about before, his son, Paul, who was shot dead, by all accounts and from people I've spoken to, was, you know, a troubled and young adult and drank responsible for the death of one of his friends. I mean, this is this is tied into the whole thing. And episode one of the series on Netflix explains how this death took place. And the father tried to muddy the waters or try and imply that somebody else was at the wheel. Well, it was shocking. And had the police under his thumb. Yeah, I mean, just in that case, because what the defence is trying to say now is that Paul Paul um, Murdoch and his mother were killed by people who were seeking revenge on him because of the death of of the the young girl. Yeah. She was a nineteen year old woman on the boat. That's his now, contention. Paul, that's that's their contention. Paul Murdoch was apparently drunk when he was driving that boat. There was an accident. He, they all ended up in hospital. Paul Murdoch was known to become very obnoxious and violent when he became drunk. But when he was in hospital, because they were all taken to hospital, his father and his grandfather arrived. Now, the grandfather has since died, but his grandfather was the the real 800-pound gorilla heavyweight, legal heavyweight. And they went into the rooms of all the other kids, basically, who were on the boat and told them what to say and told them when to say it. And I mean, for this to happen, it just shows that, 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 you know, they were allowed to do it. They then tried to claim that it was one of his friends who was a pretty poor kid who was actually steering the boat at the time. And so they were really orchestrating this total cover up and they didn't get away with it. But the fact they had the audacity to do it in the first place is so shocking. These are all lawyers. They know better. But anyway, this is what the defence is saying, that basically this was revenge for the death on the boat. This was Paul. They're saying that the son was basically had enemies and had riled people up in the past. And they're trying to peg it on that. But then, of course, you've also got the the claim that there was a that the fake suicide that he, he, you know, initially um, at one point, Paul Murdoch was changing, or I beg your pardon, Alex Murdoch, shortly after uh, the deaths, was changing his tyre on the side of the road. And he claimed somebody tried to murder him, that somebody drove by with a shotgun, shot at him, barely missed him, scratched the side of his head. It turned out then that it was his second cousin who said that it was supposed to be some kind of a, then he, no, then Alex Murdoch changed the story, said, no, it was a suicide, murder-suicide plot because I wanted to leave all my money and insurance to my youngest son, Buster. And then the second cousin testified and said, well, if I'd meant to kill my, if I'd meant to shoot my would have. And, you know, there's so much mud in all this. And I think what Alex Murdoch has admitted on the stand is that he's lied repeatedly, that he has stolen from his firm, that he is an opioid addict, that he was taking 60 painkillers a day at the time of the shooting. That's why he can't remember some things. That's why he was afraid of the police. The Murdochs were never afraid of the police. You know, any point they told the police pretty well what to do in that district. But this is what's being said. And we will see pretty soon, I suspect early next week, if it pays off or not. We will, Because powerful families, you know, 
in, in regions have a lot of power. This is a local jury. And apparently he, at various stages, the, 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 his law firm made all their money from personal injury cases. So people who were quite poor in the area, he would win money for them as, you know, as a personal injury lawyer. And that would help to improve their lives quite a bit. He also, and I think this is one of the things that, that has got to be one of the worst things he did, after his housekeeper died in his home mysteriously, he suggested to her two sons, one of whom has a, a mental disability, that they sue him and then they get the money for the accident. So they did what he said and he basically guides them through the case. He helped them to sue him, etc. And then when the money was paid out, $4.6 million in the end, he kept it. He didn't give any to these two uh, young guys, one of whom is really vulnerable. So he kept the whole lot as well. So his behaviour is absolutely shocking and appalling. But his defence is saying, yes, but does that make him a murderer? And that well, is their line, you and know. That is, and to me, that is the last straw in terms of grasping for strings of hair to defend yeah. yourself with. I may be an opioid addict. I may have uh, sued myself and the name of these kids and kept the money. I may have conned all of these people. I may have thought it was okay to cover up the death, the killing of a young girl in the neighborhood, but I'm not a murderer. I it's such a thin line between all of those things. Like why the of all of those reasons are exactly why I would think that you could commit a murder. Everyone that that they bring to the stand says this guy's a duplicitous, sneaky snake in the grass who we couldn't read and we were afraid of. Exactly. I think he's going down. Do you? Well, I think so. But as I said, there's always the OJ factor in American trials. You know, to me, the evidence is overwhelming. It really is. But there was such sloppiness. His brother testified, his brother John testified earlier this week that he cleaned up his nephew's body, that he went down to where he was lying dead, where his head had been pretty well blasted off, and he cleaned the whole area up. Why did the police allow that? Where was the collection of forensic evidence? I mean, this is just staggering that he Mm. could just wander in there and decide to do a clean-up himself, and then obviously he testified in support of his brother, but where was the evidence? Where you know, like on at any site, you would have evidence, you know. But for him to be allowed to do this, the brother of a, somebody who had to be a suspect is just shocking. And there were so many other things like that, where you could see that the police were totally intimidated by this guy and were basically doing what he told them to. And it took, remember, it took over a year for the 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 indictment anyway, and it, it took a year for him to be arrested. So even though he was the obvious, obvious suspect. But anyway, you know, so as I said, we we will see where this all goes. It is a shocking story. And of course, America's fascination with true crime. Oh, my God. Everybody is glued to this trial. They're absolutely glued to it. And and to see what the outcome is. Even though there's an awful lot bigger stories and a lot bigger stuff going down, which we will have to get to in the second half of my conversation with Mary McKeown over on patreon.com forward slash Abroad, You know the deal. Couple of clicks, you're in. You gain access to everything, including my conversation with Steve Coogan, every episode of Irishman Running Abroad, and of course, every big interview that we've done over the last 10 years. Come on over today, start of the month, get our 15% discount and enjoy annual membership for the whole 12 months. Ready? 
You have the cameras rolling. This is America. A lot of people who would probably consider themselves liberal have done very well financially under the Donald Trump four years. You encouraged espionage against our people. You condemn any interference by Russia in the American election. By Russia or anybody else. Russia, please, if you can, get us Hillary Clinton's emails. Please, Russia, please. To renew America, we must revitalize our democracy.